0: Marty, you don't know Marty. Marty needed a kidney. His friends and family had gotten, uh, you know, they get tested to see if they could be donors. Um, and some of his friends and family were good possibilities. But the doctors told Marty, we have found somebody that's a perfect match for you. We have found somebody that is a perfect match for your kidney. It's a guy named Robert. He said, there's a problem, though. Robert was tested to find out if he was a match for his wife, because she needs a kidney. And it turns out he's a good match for his wife, but Marty, he's a perfect match for you. So, we're going to do this, Marty. We're going to go talk to Robert and see if he'll give you his kidney instead of giving it to his wife. Robert agreed. He said... I'm a perfect match for Marty. I will give Marty my kidney and we will continue to search for a perfect match for my wife. See, Robert was a good match for his wife. There's varying degrees of matches. I don't know what they do if they measure the outline of where the kidney goes and see if it fits. I'd... The nurse is saying I'm right on that. Nailed it. Thank you, Wikipedia. He said, okay, we'll continue searching. So, Robert didn't hesitate, gives Marty his kidney. Now, interestingly enough, Marty's friends and family had been tested to see if they could be a match for him, and and some of them were a good match, but none of them a perfect match like Robert was. But because they were now in the database, one of his friends was a perfect match for somebody else named Samantha. So, one of Marty's friends decided, well, yeah, I'll give Samantha my kidney because I'm a perfect match for Samantha. Marty's friends uh, agreed to this, and guess what? Since Samantha's friend's family had been tested to see if they'd be a good match for her, and none of them really were, and since she now already had a perfect match for Marty's friends, one of Samantha's family members was a perfect match for, no, Thomas. You were hoping for somebody else, weren't you? So Thomas was going to get a perfect match from one of Samantha's. Friends, and wouldn't you know it, because Thomas was able to get a perfect match from one of Samantha's friends, one of his family members was a perfect match for, okay, fine, we can rest, Robert's wife. Robert's wife. Four degrees of separation, and Robert's wife received a perfect kidney. All eight people flew to the same hospital on the same day There were eight surgeries to transplant four kidneys. I know it doesn't sound right, but that's how many surgeries it requires: one to take it out and one to put it back in. And they all received uh, the kidneys they needed, and they all received the perfect uh, match of a kidney. I mean, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Robert, uh, because of his generosity, was able to finally experience a return on that. And you know, frankly, the fact is when we see people a giving of themselves, taking the opportunity to give of themselves, and um, it kind of inspires us, doesn't it? kind of inspires us to say, um, well, I would like to be one who also lives selflessly. I'd also like to lift my eyes up out of my own, uh, my own little circle, my own little heart, and look around me. And it's good to be inspired and to be encouraged to live selflessly by being inspired by others. But I want you to think of it this way. If we're inspired by observing the kindness of others... How much more powerful is it when we receive the kindness of others? Well, I think it's much more powerful. In fact, if observing the kindness of others is inspiring, I would suggest receiving the kindness of others can actually be life-changing. And Paul, the one who wrote the book of Ephesians, had experienced life-changing kindness from God Himself. He had experienced God himself being willing to give everything to save Paul's life. In fact, it changed Paul forever, we find out in the scripture. The power of the of the truth that kindness received changes lives, especially kindness received from God changes life. Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Now, I know we read verses 3 through 14, but this morning We're going to be looking at verses 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Here's what I'm going to suggest, and you can believe me or not, hopefully by the end of the message maybe you'll believe me. If we really understood how generous God has been to us, it would change us. If we really understood how generous God has been to us, it would actually change us. Paul believed it so thoroughly, that's exactly why he wrote the book of Ephesians. That receiving and understanding the generosity of God will actually change how we view the world, how we view others around us, and in fact, it it changes how we view God Himself. In fact, the Apostle Paul spends the first half of the book of Ephesians telling us all about what God has done for us. He tells us about what God has done for us. He tells us about what Christ has done for us on the cross. He describes for us in detail our new identity in Jesus Christ, and it's not till the second half of the book he says, well, if this is all true, and since this is all true, this is how you should live. Because he believes that when we understand how generous God is, he, it will change us. It will transform our very hearts. So, with all this in mind, what is the generosity of God like? What is the generosity of God like? First thing I want us to look at here is that God gives us His purpose. God gives us His purpose. Look at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus... God gives us His purpose. I don't know if you know what happened to the Apostle Paul, but in Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul was on his way to the city of Damascus, and this is what the Bible says in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, same guy, Saul, still breathing murderous threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest... And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them to Jerusalem bound. So he got permission from the religious authorities to go to Damascus, and he found if any Christians in the synagogues, he wants to bind them and arrest them and take them to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he wants them to either be in prison or be murdered or both. Verse 3 of Acts chapter 9. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, Who are you, Lord? And the voice answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise, enter the city, and I'm going to tell you what to do. So the apostle Paul is not a spiritually sensitive seeker. He's not halfway into heaven. He's not exploring his religious opportunities. He doesn't have sort of a vibe that Jesus is cool and he just wants to see if Jesus fits into his life. He just simply wants everybody who believes in Jesus to be murdered. And God, on, his, on, on Paul's way to, to do what he wants to do, Jesus just shows up and says, No, I don't think so just interrupts his complete agenda and and just says, "Uh, Paul, you're done with this. Uh, Go to Damascus. I'll let you know what to do. And Paul goes to Damascus, is communicated from another person the truth of the gospel, and he believes and receives salvation. And and Jesus tells Paul, go to the Gentiles and and tell them the gospel. I mean, just just to switch. This is Paul's calling as an apostle. His, His calling as an apostle was, the most heinous terrorist sinner you could imagine. And God says, you know what, that guy's, I can use that guy. Well, some of you are thinking, well, but he did have religious training, so maybe God was looking forward to using his religious training as an advantage for this new way that was being established in Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, we discover what Paul thought of his religious training. Here's what he had to say about it. I can find it here. "'I glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I may have reason for confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more,' Paul says. "'Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless.'" As to Owana, I got all the awards. That's basically, I mean, I don't know how else to say that. But whatever I gain, I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, Christ needed nothing, and anything I thought I have was actually a liability. Why did Paul get selected by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles? Because God wanted to. And he gives his purpose just that way. He just was into it. He's like, man, I'm going to give my my purpose to Paul. Paul's religion didn't save him. Paul's desire to know God didn't save him. uh, Paul's uh, religious training didn't save him. What saved Paul? Jesus. Interrupted what was going on and said, I don't think so, buddy. You're on my team now. God is a God who gives, and in particular here, He gives His purpose. We see this in Ephesians 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of Peter? No. By the will of the Jerusalem council? No. By my own will because I decided the pay was good? No. By the will of God Himself, God gives His purpose. By God's will, faithful in Christ. Look what he says about the Ephesian saints at the second half of verse 1. To the saints in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He is saying to the saints in Ephesus, the believers there, they are faithful not because they are steadfast, they are faithful because they serve a faithful Savior. Paul is saying this, just like it was God's will for me to be an apostle, it's God's purpose that you are faithful in Christ. It's not their diligence. It's not their willingness to endure suffering. It's not their smarts or their good looks. It's Jesus is keeping them faithful. God had given Paul a purpose, and he was now giving a purpose to the Ephesian believers to be faithful. And that would be accomplished not through them, but through Christ himself. Maybe you missed my point here at the risk of being repetitive. God initiates, God saves. And God sustains, God does all the work. We do the trusting. And I'm talking to believers, too, here. You say, well, that's great for the unbelievers. As a believer, though, I'm I'm buried by the weight of my obligations. God does the saving. God does the sustaining. God does it all. We do the trusting. God is the one who gives us a purpose. We don't give Him a purpose. We don't decide what our purpose is. God is the one who gives us His purpose because He's generous and He's a doting Father who wants to give us a purpose. In fact, I think everybody's looking for reason, aren't they? Everybody's looking for purpose. One football player, I can't remember who, he said this, the problem was winning the Super Bowl. He'd spent his whole life chasing it, and once he got it, He realized that's where he found his meaning. Now he had it. Now what do you do? We're all looking for purpose. We're all looking for a reason to be, a reason to live, and nothing is bigger than the kingdom of God. There is nothing on planet earth, there is nothing in the universe bigger than being a part of God's kingdom. And Paul is saying this, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus because God said, I want you to be an apostle in my kingdom. And he's saying to the believers in Ephesus, you are faithful in Christ Jesus because I want you to be faithful in my kingdom. And he's saying to us today, I I give you a purpose, I am faithful for you and you are in me in my kingdom and there's nothing bigger than that. There's nothing better than being in the kingdom of God. Okay, it goes without saying to have purpose in God's kingdom. You have to have a relationship with God. That goes without saying, I would think, but maybe I should say it anyway. So look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God gives us His purpose. God also gives us His life. What does it mean to have life in God and how do we get it? What does it mean to have life in God and how do we get it? Paul covers this in more detail in chapter 2 of Ephesians. If you want to turn the page over to Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 5. This is what Paul says. I'm going to read uh, verse 5 to verse 10. Some of these verses are very familiar to you. So what I would challenge you to do, it's always hard to read verses that are familiar because our brain turns off. Or if you're like me, your brain turns off for no apparent reason all the time. So you don't even need that. But uh, try to, to, to keep your mind engaged even, in, even when we get to these parts that are familiar. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 5, end of verse 4. He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. When did He love us? When we were dead in our sin. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. How did we become alive? he made us alive. He loved us when we were dead, and he made us alive with Christ because of his grace. In fact, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where's Jesus right now? Right hand of the Father making intercession on our behalf. Where are you right now? You're a church, right? I'm in church. Seated at the right hand of the Father, in your position, in your standing, in Christ, you are seated next to God. There is no place in the universe more honor, uh, more honor-bound, more significant to be. There's no place. Invitation to the White House, wherever. You're already there. Verse 7, so in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which god prepared in a, excuse me prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's hard to re- read a version different than what you've memorized. So uh, I, was, I think I was trying to quote the NIV there. We're made alive by God in Christ by grace through faith. Why did God do that? You feel bad for us. You saw we were in a pickle. Man, those guys are dead in their sin. What are they going to do? He had made a great creation, we messed it up, and he felt obligated to somehow fix it. Otherwise, somebody might accuse him of doing wrong, as though that could be done. You know, none of those answers are right. What is the reason the Bible gives us that God extended His grace to us? It's Verse 7, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness. He wants you to know He is kind. God does all of this that you might know He is kind. He is, in in fact, He is so kind, He unloads the riches of His grace. Thankfully, He doesn't save us according to the riches of our sin. He saves us according to the riches of His grace, which actually far surpasses our sin. The story of the Bible. Now, for some of you, this is new information. The story of the Bible is God's effort to show us He is kind. The story of the Bible is God's enduring effort to let us know that I am kind and I want to give you life through my sacrifice. That's the story of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation, God saying, I am kind and I want you to come to me because I want to give you life through my sacrifice. Very quickly, let's look in the Old Testament. Isaiah Chapter 28, verse 9. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. It's a story of a prophet preaching to people who are drunk. We don't have a chance to read the whole chapter, but I'm not kidding. I don't know if you've ever been in that position. I've only been in that position once. It was very interesting, but not as interesting as his. So he's talking to the people of Israel, and they're celebrating their greatness Celebrating that they are the people of God and received all the blessings of God, and therefore they can live however they want. He says this in Isaiah 28, verse 9. The prophet has been explaining to them they need to abandon their own uh, self reliance and seek the Lord once again. And they begin mocking him in verse 9 of Isaiah 28. To whom will he, that is the prophet, teach knowledge? To whom will this prophet explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those who have taken, been taken from the breast, they're making fun of Him. Who are you going to teach? The babies? I mean, what you're teaching is so basic and so infantile, the only ones you need to hear this message are, are babies. And, and so then they go on to explain their brilliance of theological understanding. Verse 10, for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now, the original here is very hard to uh, translate, but basically what they're, they're doing is they're reiterating their view of the law in a jumbled, sort of drunken way. Well, you know your law, it's line by line, blah, 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 I mean, some of you leave church like that. Oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, okay, no, I'm kidding. They're making fun of him. Oh, prophet, I'll tell you what your sermon's going to be. A little baby could preach it. Blah, line by line by line, be good, be good, be good. We get it. Go away. You're ruining this party. So they're jabbering on and making fun of him. And this is his response in verse 11. For by people of strange lips, see how he's making fun of their, their uh, gibberish. By people of strange lips and people with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom, that is, those foreign people who speak in ways you can't understand, like you guys. He, this is what he says. This is rest. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose. See, the religious know-it-alls. They were going, they we know what you're gonna, we know what you're gonna say. Do, 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 do. Get on with it. And Isaiah goes, No, 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 you've missed it, and the Gentiles are gonna get it. God wants you to have what? Rest. God will come to the Gentiles and say, Gentiles, you who speak a foreign tongue, this is rest. Not just rest, repose. What is repose? Take it easy. Put your feet up. And I get you a bite to eat? Would you like me to wash your feet? But they would not hear. That is the religious people of Israel. They wouldn't hear. The word of the Lord will be to them, the religious ones who have rebelled against God's rest, the, the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, line upon line. Those who have missed the kindness of God see God's purpose as a big to-do list, of precept, do this, don't do this, do this not much, but a little. line upon line, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. He says, listen, when he comes and, and, and uh, communicates rest to the Gentiles, the religious will trip and they will fall backward and they will be broken and they will be snared. That reminds us of another verse in Isaiah, Isaiah eight fourteen. I know many of you were thinking of it. He says this, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Who's stumbling? The religious people who say, here's, here's everything God wants to do. We know we've got God figured out. He's got a big, long to-do list. And He will be a sanctuary, a, a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling. Anybody know who the prophet's talking about? Paul did. And he says who it is in Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, uh uh-oh, what happened? The Gentiles, remember those who speak a foreign language, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, trust. But that Israel who pursued a law, what's a law? precept by precept, and line by line by line. Israel, who pursued a law that, would lead, to, that uh, would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's Romans 9, 32. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To the fool, let me explain. We're going to make it real simple now that we've spent a bunch of time in the Old Testament. To the fool, God is a bunch of rules. To the fool, God is merely a bunch of rules of what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. That's how a fool looks at the story of God and understands God. To the wise, God is rest. God expresses His kindness to us by providing through Christ rest. Why is this so difficult? Why is this such a stumbling block? I would suggest it is even for us. The problem we have with this is it's merely a matter of faith. It's merely, it's simply a matter of trust. Do you trust that God is a God of rest? Or do you really trust that God is a God of some rest but mostly work? God gives us life. God gives us life because the whole point He is making in His Scripture is to tell us He is kind and He is gracious, and if we will trust Him and what He did through Christ, He gives us rest. It's a bit of an aside, so this will get me in trouble. Now you're excited. So some of us have been Christians for a while, and I don't know how you measure uh, how good of a Christian you're being, how you decide if you're really hitting it this week or not. I haven't figured it out either, so don't ask me. But where are you in Christ? Standing next to the Father. In Christ, we're in the throne room of heaven with the Father. So explain to me how you knocking it out of the park in your Christian life is going to improve that. I mean, how are, how are, how are you going to build on that? Where are you going to go from throne room of heaven? Like throne room of heaven, but highest ranking person? No, there's no higher. The Christian life is one long life of learning to rest, not learning to work. Many of us have been sold a bill of goods most of our Christian life, and we were told you get saved by grace and you spend the rest of your Christian life working your tail off. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, because you'd all raise your hand, then we'd have to start over, but... It's a matter of faith. You get saved by faith, you live by Christ in faith, and we go to glory by faith. And this is difficult. Even right now, many of us are wrestling in our minds. No, no, this doesn't sound right because what about that Yahoo that lives next door to me? He claims to be a Christian. I know he's he's not living right. Thankfully, he probably says the same thing about you, and so you're... All right. God gives us purpose... God gives us His life. God gives us not only salvation, that is the moment of salvation, justification. God gives us our life in Him, our Christian life in Him. It's all a gift. It's all His work. It's all His kindness. All right. Verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And yes, I'm stopping in the middle of a sentence. There's no other way to do it. It's the longest sentence in the Bible. In the English, at least, it breaks it up into three sentences. In the Greek, it's one 220-word-long sentence. So we're going to stop in verse 3. God gives us His favor. God gives us His purpose, God gives us His life, and here in verse 3, God gives us His favor. God gives it all. If He has it, He has given it to us. God gives us His favor. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you're asking, well, what are these spiritual blessings? And that is why earlier we read to the end of verse 14, that whole sentence is a description of all those things that are the spiritual blessings representative of everything God has done for us. But we can summarize it this way, if God has it, He has given it to those who are in Him by faith. God has given it to us and He has not merely granted to us a a nicer form of religion, God wasn't like uh, turned for a loop and didn't know what to do with the Israelites and said, boy, people really can't get this religion thing very well. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come up with a religion that's just a little bit nicer. He didn't do that. What He has done is He has given us His kingdom, the whole thing. God has made us heirs to the kingdom of heaven and co-heirs with Christ Himself. He has not simply given us a better religion, a nicer religion. He has given us the kingdom of His glory. You could walk through all of God's creation and ask God, do I have this too? And he'd say, yeah, that's yours too. There's not one thing. Whose is this? That's also yours. Now you have to share. In fact, we discover that he has given it to us now and forevermore, meaning this. This isn't bait and switch. God has given us everything, and you'll get to see what it looks like in heaven. What he is saying is you have received every spiritual blessing today, right now. You've got it. You own it. Co heirs with the kingdom of God. There's nothing you can do to become a greater heir in the kingdom of God. There's nothing you can do to have more of God's stuff. There's nothing you can do to get a bigger inheritance, to have more of Christ, to have a better position in God's kingdom. There's nothing you can do. What can you do? The answer? There's nothing you could do. Think of it this way there's some people, and you know who they are, don't look at them. They're really bad at being Christians. I mean, they're really bad, and you know who I'm talking about. I won't use names. You know who it is. If you don't know who it is, it's probably you. (laughs) This is going to irritate you to no end. They have as much as you. They've got as much as you. And you know what? We We should thank God for that. Because, first of all, you're not as awesome as you think you are. But that's the kind of God we serve that that guy you have no respect for, that guy that you think is a, a total loser, and don't act like all religious like you don't think this way about people. You shouldn't, but we do, right? He has as much of Christ as you do. You say, well, I read my Bible every day, even memorize parts of it. And he, uh, he can't even pronounce some of the Old Testament books. He doesn't even know how to pronounce the book of Hezekiah. <laughs> See, the people who get it are the good Christians. That's not a book of the Bible. He's got the same as much, he's got as much as you. Well, God, now, I, I'm, I'm really dedicated, and I'm really trying to bring my family up the way to serve you, and I try to, to set aside some of my time and some of my money, and I really want to be a good Christian. And, and, and what about that guy? God, yeah, he, It's funny how it works. He has as much as you do. He's co-heir in Christ. And I'm telling you, we need to be so thankful that this is how he's done it. Because we have no idea how much we actually need him. In fact, what he's probably saying to that guy is saying he'll get it someday. He's gonna he's gonna learn someday. That religious guy's gonna learn to rest in me. But for right now, he's just working his tail off. Let me put it another way. I know I'm not talking to you guys, but I'm talking to the people who couldn't be here today. Think about this week you had. Some, a couple of us, the people in the gray chairs. See, the guys at the table are like, oh, I chose right. <laughs> you really blew it this week. Like you blew it big time. Like you'd be on the news, kind of blow it, if people knew. And Maybe that's why you're here today. Like I wasn't going to go to church, but I blew it. I better go get some Jesus in me. You're not less favored by God this week than you were the week before. I don't care what you did. If you're in Christ you are favored. It didn't change. It didn't dip a little bit when you blew it. It didn't go down a bit. I got to get back up to favored status. No, it didn't even change. See, how is that possible? I don't know. Take it up with Him. If I were God, it wouldn't be that way. You'd have to earn it, man. But God's not that way. He is this kind. He is this gracious. He, He favors us in the midst of our brokenness. It's crazy. God's favor has no agenda other than that's what he's like. This is what God's like. When he's bored on a Saturday afternoon, he shows his favor to people who don't deserve it. That's what he's into. It's it's his only hobby. That's the way his entire kingdom is structured, and we should just be overwhelmed with the kindness of our God. He is, in fact, more generous than anyone you will ever meet. This is what he is like. In fact, He knows this is amazing, and He wants us to be like Him. He wants us to, have, uh, to favor others the same way He favors us. He wants us to be generous and to serve others, because He knows this is the best way to live, because the best way to live is the way He does. So let me make a couple of suggestions as we move towards conclusion. See, I've changed how I say that. Move towards conclusion literally could be any amount of time. If God favors us, how can we favor those in our life, the ones we have relationship with? If God favors us in the middle of a week like we just had, can you believe what we did? Can you believe it? And He still favors us. He still pours out His grace on us. How can that inform our relationships with the people around us? The greatest way you can show favor to the people in your life is to show them Jesus. The greatest way you can show favor to the people in your life is to show them Jesus, those who claim the name of Christ and those who don't. The greatest way we can encourage the people in our life who are Christians is to remind them that they're favored by Christ, even when they're irritating you to death. You know what? You are really irritating me. You're lucky Jesus favors you. Don't say it like that. (laughs) Jesus favors you, and I want to learn too. I can't right now. I'm learning, I'm, I'm still not home yet. But I know Jesus favors you and I want to as well. What's it called when we use our gifts to declare Christ to the people around us? We got a fancy word for it. It's called make disciples. I know you thought it was some kind of class you got to take. You got to memorize 16 verses, Romans wrote, or something like that. No, when I receive favor from God and the guy next to me, I say, man, God's pretty awesome. You want a piece of this action? That's called making a disciple. That's taking the gift God has given me and realize it will never run out, so I hand it to somebody else. When we do that, we worship God and we show love to others that cannot be matched. In fact, when we do that, we finally live in our purpose, the purpose He has given us and the identity He has given us. The difference between religion and living in the gracious gift of God is religion says this, since God did this, I must do this. Those who have received the gift of a generous God say, since God did this, I get to do this because He has been so gracious to me. There's a lot of things we should consider, but before we get into the rest of the book of Ephesians, which we're going to spend several months in, the one thing we have to settle our heart and mind onto is this, and if you don't get this, you won't get the book of Ephesians, God favors us. God has bestowed on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You won't be able to read the book of Ephesians rightly if you can't get to the spot where you say, God favors me. God is for me. Right now, in this moment, everything else that Paul is going to say in the book of Ephesians is built on this one truth, Let me put it this way. Everything on the last half of the book of Ephesians is spiritually expensive. Let me just list a couple of things. He's going to tell us to humbly serve the people we're in relationship with. He's going to call us to contrite, humble obedience to God's purpose for us. And he's going to, in fact, ask us to set aside our sinful passions and behaviors. And none of those things are possible for people who are spiritually impoverished. I can't give myself to others in service if I am empty. I can't live in obedience to God's call if I have nothing to offer others. And I can't, or I should say, I won't set aside my sin if my hunger is not satisfied. The only ones who can live for God and the only ones who can live the way God has called us to live are those who are spiritually rich. Our spiritual life outside of Christ is not merely impoverished, our spiritual life outside of outside of Christ is dead. So the stunning discovery we make here is that Christ not only gives us spiritual life, he gives us every spiritual blessing, every spiritual favor. Another way of saying this, everyone in Christ is spiritually wealthy. There's nothing we lack. Look with me at the end of chapter 3. We're going to close with this. Again, close with this could literally mean anything. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. It's the last verse of Ephesians 3, and I'm going to go to Ephesians 4, 1. So those uh, few verses there. You're going to notice while I'm reading here that the beginning of this section I'm reading begins with an exaltation of everything Christ has done. And then it finishes with a declaration of what should be and what we should do with the favor that God has given us. So here we go. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Does God favor you? Is God for you? I mean, I have to know this. this is God, does God favor me? Does God, is God for me? This needs to settle into our bones. God is calling us to confront the hardness of our own hearts here. The cynicism that we have, the skepticism which we have, all of our wounds, all of our disappointments, the difficulties we have faced, everything around us is telling us, He is not good, I am not favored, either He is mean or I am too bad for Him to be nice. Everything in the world around us is designed to tell us, either He is mean or I am too bad to receive His favor. What are you going to believe? Are you going to believe your own experience in the world around us? Or are you going to believe the word of Christ Himself? You are favored. God is for you. All right. So here we come to it, and here's all I'm going to ask you to do today. You have to decide what you believe. That's the only takeaway from my message today. Here's what I told you God is God is the one who gives, his purpose, his life, and his favor. Do you believe that he is that good? I don't care how big your smile is. I don't care how big your Bible is. This question can only be answered in the secret places of our heart. And right now where you sit, you and God, now's the time to decide what do you believe. Is God mean, absent, or aloof? Are you just too bad with too many hang-ups? Or Is the Bible true? And God is the one who gives us everything and actually makes us good in His Son, Jesus. What do you believe?